Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Israel said to him, and Elisha said to him, Take a, a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end to them. And he said, take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Uh, then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Uh, then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen. And the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoiahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them now from his presence until now. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we turn to our main passage this morning, Mark chapter 15, verse 42 through chapter 16, verse 8. And when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and, and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from us, uh, for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. <clears throat> Let me pray for us. Father, uh, we come before you in the name of Jesus, with the help of the Holy Spirit here on Easter Sunday, to ask for your Spirit to illuminate these scriptures to us this morning. Uh, 
May the story of the resurrection of Jesus never get old to us, and may it be fresh in our minds and hearts this morning as we turn to your word to feast and be nourished by Christ as he speaks to us as his people in and through his word. May we hear him clearly and endeavor to follow him with greater faith and love. For your glory. Amen. If you read the life and ministry of Elisha, you'll be left feeling, I think, a little bit like his life has an abrupt and kind of shocking end. Here is this prophet of the Lord uh, that we just read about in, in 2 Kings. He's, he receives a double portion of God's spirit. Uh, he performs all kinds of miracles, twice as many miracles as the powerful prophet uh, Elijah. He uh, gives this king this rousing uh, speech. He, uh, he foretells this great historic uh, event. And then all of a sudden in the narrative, this sickness of all things claims his life and he's just gone. He's just dead. But there's a shocking end to that story. A dead man is thrown into his open grave in the midst of a moment of panic and despair. There's these marauders that are coming through and the guys that are burying their friend just kind of chuck him, just kind of throw him right into Elisha's grave. And as soon as he touches Elisha's bones... He comes back to life. He stands right up, the text tells us. And that historical narrative is a testimony to the life-giving power of God at work amongst his people. And we have a similar story before us this morning, the Gospel of Mark, the greatest of all uh, stories ever told. And I want to walk us through these events, the events of Friday evening and then the events of Sunday morning separately. But first, let me give us a reminder of the score so far. For those of you that were here on, on Good Friday, this is fresh in your, your memory because we read through these verses. But Jesus has been uh, mostly abandoned by all of the men called his disciples. Right? We know from other gospel accounts that uh, the apostle John was uh, close enough at one point to the cross for Jesus to say, Hey, John, look at my mom. That's now your mom. Mom, look at my friend John. That's now your Son, But everybody else has fled, and eventually John is off the scene as well. There's at least three women, according to the Gospel of Mark, who are keeping a vigil at a safe distance there at the cross. And it will be the same three women that rushed to his tomb uh, on Sunday morning that we'll see just here in a moment. But ten disciples had fled. John would soon follow suit. And, of course, Judas had long run away to betray Jesus and then to go take his own life. Fear has gripped the closest followers of Jesus, and, and in the final moments of his life, most of them are nowhere to be found. And if they are found, they're at a distance. Right? He's mocked. He's reviled. Jesus is crucified between two actual criminals, and upon his death, a centurion, too little too late, right, confesses, surely this must have been the Son of God. By too little too late, I mean too little too late to, to stop this whole uh, charade, to stop this whole uh, it was just a kangaroo court trial. He was, uh, it was bogus charges levied against Jesus, and it dawns upon him, uh, too little, too late, hey, we got to stop this. And that was good because it accomplished our redemption. But there he is confessing, the third person uh, in the story, in the book of Mark, to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. What life must have been like for that centurion from that moment forward after confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. But we pick up that story in what would be reckoned to them as the evening, right? For us, it would be like late afternoon. We just reckon time differently than they do. Jesus dies around 3 p.m., and he would have been buried by about 6 p.m. or so, okay? 
So let's look at the verses that deal with the events of Friday evening, as they would have reckoned it. And I want you to notice two things. Christ was really dead, and Christ was really buried. That's, that's what Mark is really driving home in chapter 15, verses 42 through 47. Jesus was really dead, and he was really buried. So let's start with the idea that Christ was really dead. You'll notice how many times in these verses that there are references to him being dead, right? The text asserts that he's dead. Pilate's surprised that he was already dead. He, it's confirmed to him by Joseph of Arimathea and uh, the centurion that he's dead. It says that Joseph of Arimathea went and asked for what? Jesus' body, right? If somebody's still alive, you don't say, I'd like to see their body, please. I'd like to take possession of their body. Now, that's, that's how you talk when someone's dead. Mark is subtly uh, putting to rest any weird notions that Jesus was just badly wounded on the cross or that he was metaphorically dead. You've heard me uh, bring up this uh, early church heresy multiple times. It's the, the phantom Jesus heresy that he was only, he was like a hologram. He wasn't really uh, truly physically uh, there. Uh, he just kind of appeared in human form and then he kind of appeared to be crucified, but he wasn't really physically present. Well, Mark is dispatching with that notion by saying that Joseph is requesting something, a body, an actual physical body to be laid in a physical tomb. You don't uh, lay, uh, when holograms burn out, you don't lay them in graves. You throw the hologram machine in the trash, right? I don't own one, but I'm, I'm supposing that that's what you would do with that technology when it failed you. So Christ is really dead. That's the point that Mark is driving home. And he, di he died surprisingly early. This is one of those details, I've, I've read this text several times before, it's one of the details that I've, I always forget, that, that Pilate is surprised that Jesus is already dead, right? And part of that is because it's, it's not uncommon for men to survive on a cross for two to three days. Apparently, some of them would just hang there for 48 to 72 hours before eventually dying, uh, there are some accounts of men after three days still being alive and then being taken down, and then they would die from their wounds later, right? There's, there's no such thing as people surviving a crucifixion. They, they, they eventually succumb to it, whether it's on the cross or after being taken down, right? But Pilate's surprised, and to me it's kind of like his shock is a little bit insensitive because it's like, well, the two actual criminal, criminals that you crucified next to him, you know, uh, they didn't get beaten and flogged within an inch of their life before being crucified, right? Jesus endures beatings and eventually uh, an incredible flogging, having the skin ripped off of his body with these, uh, these whips that would have been uh, filled with glass and shards of uh, sharp rock and other things. So he's already on his way to death before even being crucified. And, and the way that crucifixion would take your life is that uh, you, would no long, you would asphyxiate. You would no longer be able to, uh, you, you would lose the energy to be able to pull yourself up, catch your breath before sinking back down, okay? To speed up the process, they would often break, uh, they would break the legs of people being crucified so that they couldn't push up and catch another breath. Yeah, Jesus didn't have his legs broken. He simply ran out of energy. He no longer had, after beatings and floggings and being crucified, he no longer had the physical ability to raise himself up on the cross and gasp for another breath. So he breathes his last, and he dies. He's really and truly 
dead. And these three men that speak of his death are all pretty important. You have, you have Pilate, the Roman governor. You've got a centurion. You've heard me say this before. A Roman centurion was the backbone of the Roman Empire. Right? The Roman Empire just does not go without centurions. And then, of course, there's Joseph of Arimathea, who's this very wealthy man, and he's a member of the Sanhedrin, right? this Jewish council. It's kind of like Jewish parliament. Okay? And so if these three men affirm your death, we don't need a medical coroner or a coroner or a medical examiner. If these three men say and affirm that you're dead, in a court of law in those days, you're legally dead. The testimony of each of these men individually and collectively would be beyond refutation in the courts of their day. So Jesus was truly dead. And then Christ was really buried. I want to talk about the role of Joseph and then the role of Pilate. The text tells us that Joseph took courage and he goes to Pilate and asks for his body, once again affirming the truth of Jesus' death. Right? Because he was not related to Jesus, this is kind of an unusual request. Typically, those related to the dead would request uh, to take possession of their body for burial. Perhaps Jesus' mother and his other relatives were just too afraid or exhausted emotionally after watching Jesus be crucified to make this request. But Joseph steps forward and he puts himself at risk here. This is an act of great courage. He's, uh, he's one man in the narrative whose courage we can admire. The disciples, the, those who followed him openly, have fled. But here is Joseph, this kind of secret disciple of Jesus's, who's basically outing himself. One scholar said this basically amounts to a confession of, of faith, a confession of uh, of uh, loyalty to this man who was condemned to die and then crucified. He's one of uh, the members of this powerful uh, council. He's well-respected. Uh, men like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who were on that council, they favored Jesus. And it's safe to say that they didn't like the way that the rest of the Sanhedrin had handled Jesus. Luke actually tells us that Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea voted no, essentially. Right? When they're all kind of forming this illegal court and having this kangaroo court trial of, of Jesus in the middle of the night, Joseph of Arimathea voted no. He did not approve of what was going on. And I bet that Nicodemus didn't either. Right? The Gospel of John tells us that Nicodemus is actually present with Joseph of Arimathea as he's going to bury Jesus' body. The text tells us that Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. He, he wasn't looking... Uh, to maintain his power in the status quo. He's kind of like the Dr. Ron Paul of the Sanhedrin, of the parliament. Right? His voice was in the minority, and he stood for what was more noble and desirable. He wanted the kingship of God to be made manifest in Israel. Right? This was not a man like the others who is clinging to his position and clinging to power. Right? Most of the others hated the idea of the revolutionary event of the Christ arriving and taking over. That's the kind of thing that would upset their apple cart and rip power away from them. Right? So while they celebrate this moment, Joseph is lamenting and, and seeking to serve Jesus even in his death. Joseph, in his generosity, gives Jesus a burial shroud and a place to rest in peace. And this fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53.9 that, that talks about the suffering servant being laid among the rich in his death. And interestingly, it seems as as if uh, Joseph of Arimathea is from the same hometown that the judge and prophet Samuel was from. So as Samuel once took a great political risk by anointing King David, even while Saul was still king, now Joseph takes a risk of his own to bury the final Davidic king. 
The burial of the dead was an act of piety in the Old Testament. According to Jewish sources around the time of Jesus, one being Josephus, he wrote, we consider it a duty to bury even enemies. And so Jewish law also mandated that people who died from some form of hanging should be taken down and buried before sundown. Right? That's why this is something of a rushed burial. Not only is it late in the day, it's 3 p.m., and the next day would begin at 6 p.m. in, in their reckoning of time, uh, but the next day is the Sabbath. This is the day of preparation for them as they're preparing for the Sabbath. It's Friday. Right? So they have three hours uh, to get approval to take Jesus' body, to get him off of the cross, to carry his dead body to the nearby tomb and bury him. Right? Because you have to remember, also, they didn't want to touch dead bodies. It was, it was never uh, a, 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 they would become uh, ritualistically unclean by touching dead, uh, dead things. Uh, but they certainly didn't want to handle dead bodies on the Sabbath of all times, right? Nor did they want uh, bodies hanging on a cross or on a tree overnight in general. You can see Deuteronomy 21 and Galatians 3 for more information on that. So there needed to be kind of a rush service, if you will, to gather his body and to bury it. And according to the Gospel of John, even in the midst of this kind of hurried, kind of three-hour window for them to get all of this done, Nicodemus and Joseph still found the time to buy like 70 pounds of, of oils and aloes in order to prepare his body, to anoint and to uh, basically take care of his, uh, his body before burying it. So even when someone, it's important to note that even when someone despicable uh, and truly guilty of death was, uh, was hung, uh, was hung to death, uh, they viewed it, because of the law of Moses, as a defilement to the land to allow the body to remain in place. So Joseph is not only honoring Jesus and showing him incredible neighborliness and love, uh, he's also fulfilling Jewish custom, Jewish law. Uh, but remember, it's Roman law that's in charge here. Right? The Jews are under the thumb of Rome. So in some sense, if, if Pilate doesn't give Joseph the permission to take his body, none of this matters. It doesn't really matter what their customs and laws are if the powers that be don't say, yes, you can have Jesus' body and do whatever you want. Go for it. Rome didn't mind leaving bodies up for days at a time. In fact, I've heard historical accounts that what they would do is when there was a rebellion in a town, when they would put that rebellion down, they would then basically crucify the bodies at the entries and exits of the town so people coming in and out would be reminded, don't mess with Rome. Right? This is kind of a public, open deterrent from future rebellion. So Rome didn't care. Right? The idea, well, we got to get them down by sundown. Rome's like, why? Leave them up as long as, as possible. Right? Free, free advertising. Don't rebel against Rome. Okay? William L. Lane said this, In antiquity, the execution of a condemned man did not mark the final moment of his humiliation. Roman law dictated the loss of all honors in death, and even the right of burial was determined by magisterial decree. People sentenced to death forfeited their property and were forbidden burial. Apparently, the nature of the crime or the manner of execution played no significant role in the matter. It was not at all uncommon for a body to be left upon a cross either to rot or to be eaten by predatory birds or animals. The release of a corpse for burial depended solely upon the generosity of the magistrate. In other words, if you're sentenced to death by Rome, like Jesus was, you forfeit all rights and honors of burial. 
But the text tells us that Pilate allows Joseph to take his body. Pilate's role here is huge. What he does here in granting him a burial is nothing short of surprising. It was countercultural. It's, it's one of the things that you would do, I think, if you knew that Jesus was not really guilty. It's one of the things that you would do if you knew that his death was a sacrifice on the altar of keeping the peace in the midst of civil unrest. Joseph is given the body and he wraps Jesus in this fine linen, this, this shroud, and he places him in a tomb that is most likely made out of limestone. And the text tells us that he rolls this stone in front of it, right? It's a stone big enough and heavy enough that the next, uh, the next day, uh, three women would wonder if they could uh, possibly even move it. They're like, who's going to move it for us, right? We learn from John's gospel that, like I mentioned earlier, that Nicodemus was there to help him, and based on the wealth and prominence of these two men, it's likely they had some uh, form of help, so it's not just the two of them. Uh, but apparently this uh, stone, these kinds of stones, were like a yard in diameter, like this way. So like if, you're, if the stone's being rolled this way and this way, it's like a yard wide this way. Okay? That's a big stone. Okay? And apparently this stone would be relatively easy to roll into place compared to rolling it away because it would kind of be set here and it would kind of roll down into place. And so if it takes two or more men to do the easy part, Imagine what it would be like to be these three women coming on Sunday morning, a day and a half later, to go, how are we going to roll this stone away? Two of the three women that arrive at his tomb on Sunday uh, see the place of his burial. These are the same three women that are there at the cross at a distance when he is, when he is dying. Uh, Salome, <clears throat> who is thought by some to perhaps be an aunt of Jesus's, is not there. But Mary Magdalene and the Mary, who Matthew calls the other Mary, that kind of seems appropriate, doesn't it? Uh, there's just so many Marys in, in the gospel accounts. It should be Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and then just the other Mary, whoever that is. Okay? So many of them. But that's who's there. That's who's witnessing the burial place of Jesus. Now, it's important to remember, and you probably already know this because you've probably heard this in a sermon before, but in Jewish culture, women bearing witness to anything would have no value in court. Okay? Their testimony would mean nothing. Okay? Their presence here, witnessing the burial place of Jesus, is recorded not because it's convenient for the story, but because it's true. It's not convenient, culturally speaking, for them to be the major witnesses of his resurrection and his burial place. Right? If you're going to make up a story, if you're inventing kind of a resurrection mythology for your great teacher... Right? And if you're making that up, you don't make women like this, or women in general, the witnesses to his burial and his resurrection. William Lane points out in his commentary that these women are not recorded as wailing and mourning aloud. There's an absence to any reference of an open expression of sadness. And this suggests that upon the burial of the Lord that they are bearing their pain in silence. And according to Lane, mourning out loud in an open manifestation of sorrow was prohibited by law in this instance because of the sentence that he had received from Rome. So it would be, it's possible that it would be illegal even for them to mourn the way that they wanted to at the gravesite. Jesus is dead and buried. The men burying him were secret disciples while the disciples who openly followed him are scattered the only people who were well-known followers of his to bear witness to his burial were women whose testimony would not even be heard in court. 
In our fallen condition as human beings, our fear and despair fight against our faith. And in moments of the, in, in the dark moments of following Jesus, we will be tempted to flee or at least keep a safe distance. In our fallen estate, we are naturally inclined to try to save face, to avoid humiliation, suffering, and agony. And fortunately for us, despair is not the end of the story. The gospel of Jesus is a story of triumph, so there must be exaltation. The new covenant was ratified by the death of Jesus, the, the lamb being offered. And now in the resurrection of the king, who is the mediator and the guarantor of the new and better covenant, the new covenant is being vindicated. The events of Sunday morning turn everything around. I was struck as I read these eight verses by the dichotomy created within uh, these sentences. There are these subtleties. There is uh, the, the calm, there is at times almost a restfulness of the scene, and yet there's also alarming surprise. Mark opens chapter 16 with the phrase, when the Sabbath was passed. Uh, what he's describing here is the Sabbath being spent. That's kind of the phrase that he's using. That's kind of an interesting way to talk about a day, a day being spent. Mark describes... Uh, or Mark is dealing with one of the most repeated indictments of Israel and the prophets as they neglected the Sabbath. It's almost as if what Mark is saying by this phrase is that that is over. The Sabbath has been spent. God's people would be invited into God's rest in the Old Testament, and so often they would refuse. And now Mark is expressing that the Sabbath is spent. The Sabbath of the Old Covenant is past, and a new era is upon us. We don't rest in worship now on the first day of the week just because we felt like it, but because something was being fulfilled in Christ, it was being spent. It was reconstituted as something new in the resurrection. As Sunday was the first day of creation, so it is the first day of redemption. And then there's the first witnesses. After we find out what time it is, what, what day it is, we find out that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, which is the same as Mary the mother of uh, Joshus, uh, however you say that name there in 1547. And then there's also Salome. And they're coming, uh, they're coming to the tomb, uh, and there's subtleties here of a new creation motif. Right? It's very early. The sun is rising on the first day of the week. God said, let there be light in creation. Right? And there was. And in recreation, God declares Jesus, the light of the world, to be alive. And he's raised by the power of the Spirit and bursting forth from the tomb. The light that shone into the darkness comes forth on Sunday, the first day of the week. And these women brought spices that would be used to honor his body and to combat the odor of decomposition. Joseph and Nicodemus had already kind of well-treated the body of Jesus, even in their rush, even in their hurry. But these women didn't really get their chance to anoint their dead Lord and to say goodbye in their own way. And so here they are seeking to express their intense devotion and love for the Lord. And because of the climate of that area, decay would happen rapidly. So after two days, a second treatment of Jesus' body would be helpful. And as they're walking to the tomb, sometime after 6 a.m., no pun intended, but it dawns upon them that they do not have the collective strength to roll away this stone, right? Can you relate to that? Every, every duck is in a row, right? You leave for a trip or you have a big event, everything's done, and then you realize we forgot one thing, 
and it's kind of a big deal. Without this one thing, all of this is for naught. That's what they realize as they're walking to the tomb. They've already bought the spices. I doubt that you could return. Uh, I doubt that they had like Walmart return policies back in the first century. So here they are wondering how are we going to do this? Right. They did not have the physical resources that they need to get this job done. And they realize it. But as one pastor said, faithfulness has a way of running into surprises. They look up and to their surprise, the stone, this huge stone that one man could not possibly roll into place by himself, let alone rolling away by himself, well, it's been rolled away. Right? There's something of a callback to Genesis and the story of Jacob here. It's, it's kind of a deep track of the Old Testament, if you will. Like there's this moment where Jacob is there, there's this well, and there's a giant stone on top of the well, and the text tells us uh, that it takes three men to roll away right, in order to feed the sheep. And then Jacob sees his future bride, the love of his life, uh, walking onto the scene. And it says that Jacob by himself rolls the stone away. Right? Men, can you relate to that? Right? The wife really needs something done. And you're like, I got this. Right? And you just kind of warm up a little bit, and then you get it done. Well, here in this passage, just as way back in the day of Jacob, who was renamed Israel, just as Israel rolls away the stone, here new Israel, Jesus for him, the stone is rolled away by the power of God so that new Israel might nourish his flock and his resurrection. And they look inside, and what do they see? Well, they see a sitting angel. And sometimes angels have absolutely terrifying appearances, but he seems to appear as a, a young man who's well-dressed, right? Of all of the angels described in Scripture, this would be one of the least terrifying ones to look, look upon. And he's seated. It's kind of a casual thing to be doing, isn't it? In a tomb of all places. It's a unique posture for angels. What a casual way to be found when you're giving heaven's testimony about the resurrected estate of the Lord. These women are thrown into a panic by an angel who's sitting down. He's about as approachable as any angel will ever get. And he says to them, and you have to laugh at this, do not be alarmed. (laughs) It's like, okay, buddy, whatever you say, right? It's good to know that it's not just human men who say things to women like, calm down, don't worry about it, do not be alarmed. (laughs) You're in a grave, man. You're just casually sitting here. His body was there, now it's not. And you're going to tell me, do not be alarmed. But it's interesting the way that the text moves because they would have walked in. You You ever walked into a room looking for something and you get distracted by something that you weren't expecting? So you kind of don't notice whether or not that thing is or is not where you left it? It's kind of what happens here. They're looking for Jesus' body. They're immediately distracted by this sitting angel shining in front of them in the grave. And he says, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He identifies exactly who they're looking for, who was crucified. So once again, it's confirmed that he was dead. The angel, the testimony of heaven is, this is who you're looking for. He was crucified. He's super dead. He was super dead. He was right here. But you'll notice he's not here. That's who you're looking for but he's not here. And the text says that the angel says he is risen. That should probably say he was raised because the verb is passive and and it's an aorist verb, meaning that Jesus was raised by someone else. And this is a past action with ongoing results. Unlike the other stories of people being raised to life in the gospel of Mark, this is one that has ongoing results. 
Because the people that Jesus raises back to life during his ministry, they all die again. But the resurrection of Jesus has ongoing results. And he was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. The angel informs them he's not here. They saw that, and now they've heard it. And they've heard why. Jesus is absent from the grave, not because the grave was robbed, but because the power of death could not hold him, and he was raised back to life. In verse 7, he tells them what to do with this information, and it's filled with grace. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. In other words, go tell the cowards who fled, and to Peter who denied Jesus three times, Go to them and take this good news that Jesus has already told them about several times and have them meet Jesus in Galilee where it all began. As we have just begun our series on the Gospel of Mark, you'll see how Mark focuses on the area of Galilee. And in the end, Jesus gathers them back in Galilee. The women are to find these men, tell them that Jesus is alive, and he's meeting them where he first began to gather them. Not only is Jesus alive, but the implication of this message from the angel to the women for Peter and the disciples is, you're forgiven, and the band is getting back together. The message that this would be, I mean, he singles Peter out. Go tell the disciples, and Peter. Because they've all fled. They've all scattered in fear. But it was only Peter who denied him three times. There's so much grace in this message, as terrifying as, as it was. There's grace because they would know the Lord's not done with us yet. Despite the fact that we were afraid, despite the fact that we fled, that Peter denied him three times, Jesus isn't finished with us. And what happens? How do they respond? Okay, Mr. Angel, sir, you got it. No, they're thunderstruck. They're extremely surprised and shocked. We probably don't often think about this because the concept of resurrection the resurrection of Christ has had time to settle in our minds, and we weren't there in the tomb, right, where a dead man is supposed to be, hearing from a heavenly messenger that he's actually alive. But put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. Powerful men from two different governments plotted to kill Jesus. Your civil and ecclesial government leaders have a vested interest in your friend and master Jesus being dead and staying that way. All the men that you might trust to protect you are running scared. And your whole reality, everything that you thought about how things are supposed to work, people die and they stay dead. That's just been undone. This does not happen. This isn't normal. This isn't common. Now, how would you respond? This was extremely surprising and shocking to these first witnesses. The three words used to describe them as they fled are trembling, seized by astonishment, and afraid. It's three Greek words, tromos, ecstasis, and phobio. Tromos is probably the only one you probably can't connect to something, but it means quaking with fear, trembling. Ecstasis, where we get the word ecstasy or ecstatic, we've often reduced that down to just being something that's really happy. That's not the original meaning of of that word, not even in English. Ecstasis is a state of intense amazement to the point of being besides oneself. It's a displacement of the mind from its ordinary state and self-possession. In other words, these women were out of their minds. 
phobeo, right, phobia. To fear exceedingly, one teacher described it as paralyzing fear. That's where we get the concept of a phobia, right? And that, that word only appears three times in the Gospel of Mark. The transfiguration, the disciples are uh, paralyzed with fear at what they're seeing. It happens in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus is praying to describe his level of fear. And then here in this passage, describing these women. So these women are quaking with fear. They're out of their minds, paralyzed with fear. They're thunderstruck by the scene of an empty tomb and the testimony of heaven that he had been raised from the dead. And then the book ends here, maybe. According to most commentaries written in the last hundred years or so, this is where the book of Mark ends, and that's it. It just ends with these three women quaking with fear, paralyzed, out of their minds, fleeing the empty tomb. If this is indeed the end of Mark's gospel account, what do we do with such an abrupt ending? Well, remember who the first audience is and remember what they're going through. Mark is writing to the church of Rome and and, and to the greater provincial area of Italy. He's writing to a group of Christians that are suffering, and sometimes they're suffering to the point of death under the persecution of Nero. They're being persecuted just because they follow Jesus. And this text ends here with everybody in the church on the day of the resurrection scattered and afraid, doesn't it? Before the empty tomb, before they see it, these three women are the only ones that are not scattered. And now they're running. Now they're fleeing. The church is scattered and afraid in the day that Mark is writing this letter because of the possibility of death at the end of a long road of suffering. The way that Mark has possibly just ended his declaration of Jesus' victory actually has two very clear implications for them and for us today. The government of Rome, the most powerful empire on earth, the empire that is persecuting Mark's audience, they just threw their very best pitch at Jesus. They brought the fastball, the pitch that works 100% of the time, crucifixion. It's without fail. They threw that at Jesus in order to end his kingdom upon the earth, and it failed. Jesus has triumphed over the very best effort of the greatest world superpower at the time. And that's still true today. For example, the Communist Party of China will one day fall, and I think it will be because the gospel of Jesus defeats the wickedness of their worldview from the inside out. Despite the oppression of the church there, the church continues to expand. It's like that song we just sang, we're gaining ground, and there's nothing the superpower of the world can do to stop it. Secondly, Mark's account Whether it stops here or not, his proclamation to a suffering church that is experiencing death is that suffering and death itself will not have the last word under the kingship of Jesus. Jesus triumphed even over the grave. His suffering led to the ratification of his covenant with us, and and death could not hold him long enough for his body to see corruption. In his resurrection, the new covenant is vindicated. In a contest between earthly powers that be and Jesus Christ. One, in a contest between Jesus and death itself, death lost. It came up empty. The comfort of this message to the church suffering there in Italy is that the Lord Jesus has triumphed over death and the powers that seek to take your very life. That's the same message that this text has for us. We may fear and despair. Fear may fight against our faith. 
in the bleak moments of life, in suffering and persecution and wars and rumors of wars, while we might be tempted to flee from Jesus or to keep a safe distance to save face and avoid agony, the good news is that despair is not the end of the story. The gospel of Jesus is a story of victory. He is victorious over earthly authorities and even death itself. So we should not be afraid. We should instead revere the Lord and put our trust in him, for he's alive and he's well. And the tone of his invitation to his church is found in the words of the angel about the disciples and Peter. We've not been rejected. Our fear and despair have not deterred the Lord from loving us. And he longs for our presence, the presence of a people whose redemption has been purchased through his life, death, his burial, and his resurrection. Let the hearer understand.